Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, and we're looking once again at the last verses, the well, verses 5 through 10 of this first chapter, and the main theme of the portion that we're in at this moment is the subject of sin, and this is a very important theme, a dominant theme in this part, because there were false teachers in the church that were leading people astray, and they had some pretty radical ideas about sin. Sin is not a popular topic. And while dealing with the subject of judgment on Sunday morning in Matthew, uh, I've told you that really people like to use Matthew 7 verse number 1 as their life verse. Many people do. Where Jesus says, judge not that ye be not judged. And what they take that to mean is don't tell me about my sin. Your sin is none of my business. So you're not to judge me over my sin. Now I'm not going to get into the meaning of that particular scripture right now because that's part of the subject of our my sermon on Sunday morning, Matthew 7, verse 1. But sin is a very touchy topic. Um, people have different ideas about sin, varieties of opinions about what sin is, about whether sin really matters, about who sins, and those types of things. There's a lot of differences of opinion. Well, John is dealing with this subject, and he gives a correct view of sin. And in the process of this, he's refuting false teachers who are deceiving the church with damaging heresies. So sin is the subject. And if you'll look in 1 John chapter 1, verse number 5, is where we'll begin reading. This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now in these verses we notice that Sin and no sin is contrasted by the words light and darkness. Darkness represents the evil of sin. Light represents the holiness of God. And these are common terms that we find in the scripture. Satan's kingdom is called a kingdom of darkness. God's kingdom is called the kingdom of light. And these are two kingdoms that can't mix. You can never put light and darkness together. And John uses that as a metaphor to show us the impossibility of having fellowship with God while we're living in sin. Now that doesn't mean that we're perfect people. John's not making a claim of perfection for Christians. But he is saying that sin is an issue that has to be dealt with and God is the one who has to deal with it. And before God will deal with sin, at least in this life and and, and purge us from our sins, we have to have a relationship with God. And if that relationship does not exist, the Bible puts it very simply, you're not a Christian. Now the problem that John is dealing with here is the heresy of the Gnostics. It was their false doctrine particularly that prompted this letter. They had a false view of the relationship between the body and the spirit, and so they had come up with a false view of Christ's humanity. They believed that the material body was, uh, was evil, and so therefore Christ could not have had a material body. Well, that particular heresy set off a chain reaction of successive false teachings. That kind of doctrine affects the virgin birth of Christ. It affects the bodily resurrection. It denies the vicarious atonement of Christ. 
It makes a total mass confusion of the doctrine of sin. So John has to unravel all of this because these doctrines are all interrelated. And that's really what makes it somewhat difficult for us to sort of dig out what John is saying in this book of 1 John because he crisscrosses those themes over and over again and repeats himself. But he starts off here in chapter 1 dealing with the humanity of Christ and the evidence that he gave us that Christ was real was his own personal testimony and that of the apostles. He says, I heard Jesus, I saw him, I touched him. So there's no doubt in my mind that he's both man and God. And that would refute the idea that Christ could not have come in the flesh uh, because Christ is the perfect Son of God and he came in a material body. So that tells us that sin does not come from the material body. And John established this, first of all, by his personal testimony. Now, in the fourth chapter, he's going to come back to this again and part of that crisscrossing pattern that he has. And he writes in 1 John chapter 4, Hereby know we the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Now, what that is, that is a point black attack, I mean, a blank attack. That is a slap in the face of Gnosticism. So he wants them to get this. Jesus was flesh and blood, so that means that the material body is not the source of our sin. So the confusion over the issue led to confusion about the doctrine of sin, and we're trying to sort this out along with the... Apostle John as he exposes the false teachers. So we've looked at two areas concerning sin thus far. This is part number two of the message. And what we've covered thus far is sin in relation to conduct. In 1 John 1 verse 6, he says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. The Gnostics were a very wicked group of people. They claimed that they knew God and they fellowshiped with God. They believed that they had a superior fellowship that the ordinary Christian doesn't have. They had been enlightened beyond what normal Christians know. And what they had done with this false doctrine is separate the spirit from the body in relation to sin. And they taught that sin was in the body and since the body is not really the true man, your spirit is the true man. They said, well, then it really doesn't matter. You can sin all that you want. But verse number 6 says that no matter how you look at this, conduct is an indicator of whether you truly, truly, whether you truly know who God is. And so you can't live in sin. No matter what you think about the body, you can't live in sin and have fellowship with God. And how you view sin indicates your position. It says whether you're saved or whether you're unsaved. And so living in sin is a stigma that brands you as an unbeliever. And this is really the reason why that we have so many warnings in Scripture about the way that we live. That's why we have uh, passages that tell us that we need to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Because we have to look at our lives and see if we have actually separated from sin. Because Scripture says that God has called us out of darkness into light, into the light of Jesus Christ. And so if you continue in sin, you're not a child of God. Now John also addresses this in chapter 3 when he talks about habitual sin. Christians cannot live in habitual sin. And if a person does, then he can't really be a child of God. Now the second thing that we've looked at is sin in relation to character. The fact that we commit sin is an indication of our nature. We receive a sin nature when we're born. I mean, all people get this. I mean, at your conception, you become, uh, you receive this sin nature. It's just a part of your being. 
We don't sin and then become sinners. We sin because we are sinners. And so in verse number 8, John refutes any claims also that once we have become Christians, when we trust Christ, that actually the sin nature is gone. This is what he's talking about in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So he's telling us that the sin nature is not eradicated when we become Christians. And the reason that we know this is because he goes on in verse number 9 and he speaks about confession. There wouldn't be any need to confess sin if we, did, if we had totally stopped sinning when we became Christians. And we're going to talk about verse 9 a little bit more in just a few minutes because we do need to understand the relationship between forgiveness and confession. So obviously, if a person thought that he never sinned, then he would never confess sin because he wouldn't think that he needed to. And so if you're a person that doesn't confess sin, John says that's another indication to tell that you're not a Christian. So if you're born a sinner, as the Bible teaches, you not only have a nature, you also have a need. And the need that you have is for your sins to be forgiven. But you also get something else when you're saved, not just forgiveness, but you also get a new nature. Christ implants a new nature in you that has the capability not to sin. Now, your old nature is not that way. Your old nature is sinful. It's not going to change. Because sin is always the choice of the old nature. But you have a new nature that God has given you when you become a Christian. It's, it's created in holiness. And this new nature has new capabilities. In other words, it has the ability not to choose, not to choose sin. You didn't have it before, but once you become a Christian, you now have this new ability not to choose sin. Well, the new nature is why John says that Christians do not habitually live in sin. And so if you do, then it would be proof that the new nature has not been given to you. Because the new nature is never going to be characterized by sin. So if these Christians then were being taught by someone who was sinful in their character, and they didn't really show fellowship with God by the way that they lived their lives, then John says, you know not to listen to them. They have to be false teachers. They can't be telling the truth if they're people who continue to live in sin. Now, that brings me to the third consideration about the doctrine of sin. And this is sin in relation to consequences. Now, here John is speaking to people that are saved. He's not dealing with the subject of justification. Verse number 9 is not about justification. It's about progressive sanctification. Now, I'm going to talk about justification and also the blood of Christ in another message. But the meaning that John has here when he, when he speaks about being cleansed from sin, he's speaking about our daily walk with God. And for a Christian, sin has consequences concerning the way that you walk with God. Now, in first consideration of consequence, I want to speak to you about what sin does to our walk with God. And then secondly, I want to tell you about the consequences of the confession of sin. So first then, what does sin do to our walk? John says, it destroys our fellowship. Verse 6 again says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now, it seems like the converse of that statement would be, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in light, we tell the truth and we do the truth. And that's definitely a true statement, but it's not the point that John deals with in verse number 7. He goes on in verse 7 and says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. It seems that what John would say here is that walking in the light means that we have fellowship with God. 
But that's not what he says. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other. Now, why would you suppose that John would state it that way? How do we tell that we actually have fellowship with God? Well, I can stand here all day and I can talk to you about having fellowship with God and I can claim that I do. I could say, I have fellowship with God. But how would you judge that? And and how would you know I was telling the truth? Well, there's only one way. You'd have to see a demonstration of the words. You don't believe me just because I've said this. You need to see something in my life that says, well, yes, that's evidence that this person is having fellowship with God. So what God does, he he doesn't tell me to separate from other believers. He tells me to separate from unbelievers because sin is the thing that's going to separate me from believers. Now, follow me here with this. I mean, if you've ever tried this, and I I know all of us have at some time or another, we're uncomfortable when we sin. And when we get together with other believers and we're living in sin, it, it's, not, it's not comfortable to be around people that, that are Christians and are doing what's right. And I know this is an undisputable fact that when Christians drop out of church, it's not because they become highly sanctified and holy and they don't need to go to church anymore. And most of them wouldn't even claim such a thing. They know that they're probably harboring some pet sin that they don't want to give up. They like to do this. They, they keep on with that. And so to go to church just reminds them of the guilt that they have. And they don't want their sin to be preached against. They, don't want, uh, they want to hear it from the pulpit. And so they stay away from church so they won't be confronted with sin. And they notice that when uh, people are in church and they're worshiping God and they're feeling guilty over their sin that that their lives pale in comparison to those who have happiness because they're serving the Lord. So a Christian that stays away from church, would you say that that is a person that has fellowship with God? Well, most of us would say no. And matter of fact, the first thing that I would say to a person who doesn't go to church and doesn't come in fellowship with God's people, then I would say to them, you're out of fellowship with God. Now, am I qualified to say that? Well, according to 1 John, I am. He says that if you're not fellowshipping with the body, then there must be sin there that's keeping you also from fellowshipping with God. Now, let me attack the problem here from a little different angle. Um, I've said that most people that stay out of church will not claim that they're more spiritual than people that go to church. Now, now it may be true. We all know, you know, the whole thing about hypocrites. I'll talk about that on Sunday. Some people come to church for the show and all of that. But generally, you wouldn't judge that a person who came to church would be less holy than a person who didn't come to church. But there are some people who have done this. They've actually separated themselves from the body and from the fellowship because they do think that they're more spiritual. This is what the Gnostics did. I mean, that's really an identifier of the Gnostics. They separated themselves from other Christians, ostensibly because they were in a superior fellowship with God. And John says, if you have people that separate themselves from the fellowship of God's people, then that's a dead giveaway. He says, you are a liar. You can't have both. You can't have fellowship with God and not have fellowship with his people. Now, I've had some tell me, well, I'm not going to come back to church. And it's not because of doctrinal heresy, but they say, well, the church is not holy enough. People in the church are not holy enough, and so we're not going to come. And so evidently they've reached some level of holiness that we don't have. Well, is that a Gnostic argument? You know, I think it's possible that a church could break down and they could be, holiness in the church could be a real issue. 
But it never happens in a church that's teaching the right doctrine. You know, I've had some people say, well, we don't have any issues with the doctrine at all. We think the doctrine's correct and what's being preached from the pulpit is okay. It's just the people aren't holy. Well, it tells me then that there's something wrong with the assessment of a person like that because wrong doctrine always produces a lack of holiness, but right doctrine never will. Right doctrine produces more holiness, not less holiness. Now, it may be that some reject the doctrine of the church and they don't live in holiness, and those are usually the people that drop out. They're not going to stay with the church. So it tells me there's something wrong with the person's assessment on this. Maybe the person doesn't really understand holiness. And maybe what they're doing is they're judging too much by all the external things and about the preferences that they have, rather than upon true holiness as the Bible speaks of it. So here's what it comes down to. The Scripture says that we are not to forsake the assembling ourselves with God's people. It says that we are to esteem others better than ourselves. It says that we are to bear one another's burdens. It says that we are to examine our lives. And we're to be sure that there's not a beam in our eye while we're trying to pick out the specks that are in other people's eyes. And if you're doing all that, could it be possible... That, or I should say, if you're not doing that, could it be possible that you could ignore everything the Scripture says about your relationship with other Christians and being with the body of Christ? Can you ignore it and at the same time claim that you have a superior relationship to God? It's impossible. It cannot work. If you don't go to church because you picked on something that's in the preacher or picked on something that's in other members and you are not absolutely sure that there is not a smidgen of sin in your life, then don't dare claim that you're fellowshipping with God on a different level than everybody else. You not only have the sin of disobedience to contend with, but you have the same pride that caused the fall of Lucifer. Now, I'm speaking to you here tonight, and as usual, this is the wrong crowd. I mean, you're here, you're you're fellowshipping, this is not a problem for you. And so you take it as information. Just be very careful not to get your nose out of joint over something that's insignificant. Don't get upset by things that are trivial. Don't fall out of church either because of sin that's in your life or because that you think you've conquered sin and you're better than everybody else. And that's another problem that John dealt with. It's another part of the argument. Some thought that they had made it. They could live above sin, but they were really just the same old sinners that they ever were. It's just that they redefined what sin was. So they have new definitions, and so they can, you know, everybody can stop sinning if you let me or somebody else define what sin is. I can make myself not a sinner as well. But this is the consequence of sin. You lose fellowship with God, and it's demonstrated by a loss of fellowship with God's people. Now, I want to consider the, the consequence of our confession with sin, of sin. What does it do? Well, it demonstrates God's faithfulness. In verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse number 9 is one of those battlegrounds of Scripture that many people have trouble with. And so you find lots of variations of interpretation trying to explain this verse. Now, I've already mentioned that this verse is not talking about forgiveness of sins in salvation. This statement is true concerning our initial salvation, but it's not the way that John is using it in this context. So we're not speaking here of the imputation of Christ's righteousness that occurs when we place our faith in Christ. That's what we call being judicially forgiven of our sins. Now, there's some like William MacDonald who have phrased this as parental forgiveness. 
And he says this is not forgiveness from the penalty of sin because that's already been done at the, at the point of your conversion. When you trust Christ, you're released from all the penalty of your sins. And he correctly states that judicial forgiveness is done only one time. The penalty of sin is, is taken away, past, present, and future, upon your reception of Christ as Savior, believing that he shed his blood for you, and when you become a Christian. That sin is taken away, past, present, and future. The penalty of it's all taken away. And so he terms this as parental forgiveness, which, which is something that you have to have on a lifelong basis. This is forgiveness that's needed in order that we maintain fellowship with God and we're able to walk with God in our daily lives. Now, mostly I would agree with that, but I found another interpretation of it that I think is quite interesting. And this interpretation says that we're actually never out of fellowship with God. We always maintain fellowship. Now, I looked at that, and I had to think that the person was talking about relationship rather than fellowship, and if that's true, I would agree with the statement. Uh, if, 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 if it's relationship, yes, we never do fall out of our relationship that we have with God. But we can fall out of that fellowship that we have with him. So we could interpret the verse to mean that if a Christian is continually confessing, then the work of God is evident in his life, which means that God is actively forgiving him from sin, he's cleansing him from his unrighteousness, and that happens on an ongoing basis. Verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. And that last part there is rightly interpreted that the blood of Jesus Christ his Son keeps on cleansing us from all sin. And so if you put those two verses together, you come up with a hypothetical. And what I mean by that is you're, you're not... You're not confessing sin as a condition of forgiveness. In other words, if you confess your sins, then sin will be forgiven. But rather, the verse is speaking about a hypothetical. That if a Christian is confessing, that's evidence of salvation. And it's evidence that the promise that God gives in our justification is that God will always keep on forgiving and cleansing us from sin. Now, I don't know if I explained that well enough for you to, to understand that. But it's an interpretation that does have some merit. I mean, I can see this. I mean, uh, uh, the opposite of it are people who wrongly teach that salvation, or rather that sins after salvation are not forgiven unless they're confessed. And so it would actually be possible for a Christian to go through his whole life with unconfessed sin that's never, never, never taken care of. Then he gets to the judgment seat of Christ and they believe that it's going to be taken care of there. And then it would actually be possible for a Christian to go into heaven with unconfessed sin. Then on the other side, or another variation of that, are, are people like the Roman Catholics. And their idea is to confess your sins to a priest, and the very act of confession itself is meritorious. And by the fact that you will confess, then God will forgive you of your sins. And there are added various acts of penance to that, like saying the rosary, repeating the Hail Marys, and the all, Our Fathers, and all of that. Well, both of those are wrong views concerning forgiveness. It's actually as bad or worse than what the Gnostics had to say about this. So, if forgiveness of sin, based upon the Roman Catholic idea, is that it comes based upon something that you do, then it would mean that the work of Christ is meaningless. Or at least, the work of Christ is no more significant than what you can do for yourself. So, we go back to the main point then, 
that the consequence of confession is the opportunity for the demonstration of God's faithfulness. Now, what is the demonstration? Well, according to verse number 9, there are two demonstrations of God's faithfulness. The first one is remission of sins. Now, remission means the same thing as forgiveness. The Scripture says God is faithful and just to forgive us. If we're talking about initial salvation, this would be a true statement also. As long as we understand that confession of sin has to be accompanied by belief. I mean, just to say, well, God, I know that I've sinned and I want you to forgive me. That's not enough. Because forgiveness is not obtained without faith. God forgives based upon justification by faith. A few weeks ago, there was a lady who called me. And this lady attends church here sometimes. And she asked me if I would go see a relative of hers. And she said to me, he's really having a hard time. He won't forgive himself. And he needs to understand that God will forgive him. Well, that wasn't really the time for me to go into all the theological implications of her statement. But I knew the man, and, and I thought that perhaps he had really never received Christ by faith. And so he couldn't say, she couldn't say, well, he, he won't forgive himself and, and he needs to understand that God will forgive him. No, God won't forgive him. God won't forgive him without faith. Faith has to be in Christ. So if a person hasn't believed in Christ, he hasn't confessed Christ for salvation, then God doesn't forgive. He's faithful and just to forgive of sin if we have repented and believed in him. Now that's one side of it if the first we're talking about justification. But here we're actually talking not about justification, but our sanctification. And since John is talking to believers, that issue of salvation by faith has already been settled, and now we're talking about the promise that he gives of fellowship. And God wants all of his people to be in fellowship all of the time. So if you've sinned against God, and the guilt of that sin is keeping you from praying, if it's keeping you from the desire to be with God's people, whatever sin does to you, you just need to understand that God is always willing to forgive when it's asked for. And God restores to fellowship. At the very moment you confess your sins, God brings you back into fellowship again. Now the scripture says here that he's faithful to do that. And the reason that he, that he is faithful is because that's an act of justice. God will forgive because he's basing it all, all upon what Christ has done for us. Christ has satisfied the penalty of our sin, so it would actually become unjust for God not to forgive us. Well, certainly we can depend on God to forgive us, so he's not going to hold sin against us. The judicial penalty for sin was settled at the cross. And so as a righteous act, God must forgive us. Now, let me read John Gill's comment on this, on verse number 9, and I think it helps to explain it. And I want you to notice as I read this that he lends credence to the hypothetical interpretation of the verse that I gave earlier, which is, confession is evidence of those that are truly saved. He says, forgiveness of sin here intends not the act of forgiveness as in God proceeding upon the bloodshed and the sacrifice of Christ, which is done at once and includes all sin, past, present, and to come, but an application of pardoning grace to a poor, sensible sinner, humbled under a sense of sin and confessing it before the Lord. And confession of sin is not the cause or condition of pardon, nor the manifestation of it, but it's descriptive of the person and points him out to whom God will and does make known his forgiving love. For, who, for to whomsoever he grants repentance, he gives the remission of sin. 
in doing of which he is faithful to his word of promise, such as in Proverbs 28:13, and just in being true, as the Arabic version adds, to his word, and showing a proper regard to the blood and sacrifice of his son, for his blood being shed, and hereby satisfaction made to the law and justice of God, it is a righteous thing in him to justify from sin and forgive the sinner for whom Christ has shed his blood and not imputed to him or punish him for it. Now, I thought that was a great comment, and that was really helpful to me. And I can understand that argument when we're taking into consideration that some wrongly interpret confession as a necessity for the judicial forgiveness of sin for those that are already saved. So it makes sense, and it helps you climb out of that problem of trying to distinguish between fellowship and relationship. Now, we notice further that the consequence of confession is removal of sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Most of the older writers say about this that cleanse us from all sin is the same as forgive us of our sins, which is really then stating the same thing in a different way. And I can see that because forgiveness and cleansing are both the removal of sin. Now, it's an important point in Scripture to understand that the guilt of sin is taken away when we trust Christ. When we have placed our faith in Christ, Christ becoming a substitute for us actually takes away the guilt of sin. And there's a term for this. Um, Maybe you've heard, you've probably heard it, I've used it before in, in the preaching, but it's the term expiation. And I'm going to explain that when we get into uh, 1 John 2, verse 2, where we talk about propitiation. We'll also talk about another word here, which is expiation. And that's where God actually takes away the guilt of sin. Now, there's a beautiful picture of that that's given in the Old Testament. I'm not going to get into it tonight. But when we get into 1 John 2, verse 2, we're going to look into the Old Testament and see the demonstration that God gives in a very graphic way of how sin, the guilt of sin, is actually removed from the believer in Christ. So that's where I want to conclude tonight. We have to understand how serious that sin is. God is light, and Him is no darkness. And if we go on sinning, then it can't mean anything other than we aren't truly the children of God. So just to recap then these two sermons and give you a recap of the problem that John is addressing here, it follows three lines of reasoning concerning sin. And each successive statement that John makes in this, the error is increasing. So it's wrong for us to say that we can live in sin and have fellowship with God. It is wrong for us to say because we are Christians, we no longer sin, and therefore we don't need to confess. And it's wrong to say we have never sinned because we aren't sinners. Now in case number one, we lie and do not the truth. That's according to verse six. In case number two, we're deceived and the truth is not in us. That's according to verse number eight. And in case number three, we make God a liar and his truth is not in us. That's according to verse number 10. And so you can see the progression. Number, number three there is worst of all because if you ever get to the place that you call God a liar, heaven help you. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's why God became man. He had to go to the cross to take our sins away. And so you can fall into some very serious error if you don't look at sin in the right way. And we have to understand that our conduct and all these things that we've talked about are very important concerning our fellowship with God. And that's why we want to heed the warnings of Scripture 
So we stay in fellowship with God and thereby receive his blessings as his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we spend in your word tonight. And we thank you, Lord, for the truths that are brought out here. And sometimes it's hard for us to put it all together because of the way that John approaches this. But it's so rich in meaning. And it's worth our time to look into it and and find out really what John is trying to say to us. So, Lord, bless our people. Help us to be a holy people, truly a holy people, that we're concerned every day about whether we're living in your will and following what you want us to do. We know we'll be a blessed people and a blessed church if we just live as John tells us to here. Bless us tonight, Lord. We thank you again for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's